right, I want you to think of a place that has a lot of significance and meaning for you. Um, my boys talk about this. They, you know, <laughs> it sometimes sounds a little whatever, you know, like their happy place. Uh, the, the, they have their places like, this is a happy place for me. Um, the, the grandparents' house. Well, either side of the family, the grandparents' house, that's a place they get some extra treats. They can get away with it a little bit more around the grandparents, usually. Uh, they get that kind of love. Maybe grandparents' house for you growing up was like that. Um, they, you know, Christy's parents are up in the mountains and so, or in Colorado near the mountains. And so when we visit, we often go up to the mountains. One of my boys this past time when we were there a few weeks ago, he's like, I love being in the mountains. It's one of those places that just has some special significance for him. Uh, today we're going to be in 1 Kings 8. Open up to 1 Kings chapter 8. I'm sure for that place that for you has a lot of meaning and significance, I'm willing to bet there probably is some things about it that isn't all that remarkable, and yet it's still really important. It's still really special. We're going to talk about the temple today as we go through the sermon series that goes through the big story of scripture. And the temple plays a big, big part of the overall story in scripture. David wanted to build a temple for God. He didn't get to do so, but his son Solomon did. And it's a stunning and it's a glorious temple. And artists try to render this temple to try to capture it, but I'm sure it, it doesn't do anywhere close to justice of what it must have actually been like. And the temple was a very special place for Israel. It was the center of their worship. It was, for many of their holidays, the center of their holidays. When invaders came and destroyed the temple, the nation was distraught. And when they were able to, they, they, they took decades to rebuild the temple. And today in our sermon in 1 Kings 8, we're going to explore two questions as it relates to the temple, which is what made it special? And then just to put it bluntly, why should we care? <laughs> why should we care about the temple and what made it special as you go out and live the rest of your life today, this week, as you perhaps get with family and friends and look at fireworks, celebrate the 4th of July as you go back to work? Why should we care about a temple the Israelites built thousands of years ago. All right, we're in 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 is really the grand opening ceremony, dedication, christening, however you want to word it, of the temple. It's finally completed. It's open for business, so to speak. And in verse 1, it says, Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. And when all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the Ark and they brought up the Ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, 
the most holy place and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. And these poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside of the holy place. And they're still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. And when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So in this grand opening, the who's who of Israel shows up. There's all this activity going on. And uh, most, the most sacred relics of Israel's history are brought to the temple. And this dark cloud, God's glory, fills the temple. And we see in verse 13 what this kind of means. Part of the significance of the temple, it was supposed to be a place where God's presence could dwell forever. And what makes the temple special is that it was a place where God's presence could be uniquely felt. The temple was kind of this place where you, heaven met earth. When you walked into the, to the temple, you got to experience a bit of the divine. They could, uh, they could encounter God in this really different, powerful kind of way. I don't know how many of you are fans of The Office, the TV show. Christy and I have been longtime fans since season one. And so the, a few years ago, here in Chicago on Michigan Ave, they had the office experience, if some of you remember this. So what they did in this space was they set up an exact replica of the office set. I mean, down to the most minute detail. It was, and they actually had actual items from the, the set there for, for things. And so you know, for a not so small fee, you could pay to walk around in, uh, you know, the, the set of the office. But, it, it, you know, if I wanted to, I could access uh, the office right now on my phone. I could pull up clips or, or uh, episodes. But that place, it was a bit where, like, the TV show and reality clashed, <laughs> where they met. For some of those moments, you felt like, I'm in the show right now. Like, this is... And that's a bit of what the temple was like with the divine realm and the earthly realm. It's where these two met and where you could experience God in a powerful way. And so David, uh, not David, Solomon, excuse me, starts praying this prayer as an opening dedication to the temple. And we're not going to go through all of the prayer, but he starts in verse 22. Um, and, 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 well, and starts praying, but I, actually I want to skip down to verse 27 where he says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Sometimes we think of God and we're like, wait, God isn't held by a temple. Like we know God's bigger than we can comprehend. His presence is, fills all of heaven. It fills all of creation. Solomon knew this. He knew, okay, I have this temple. 
Uh, but, but God is bigger than this temple. And you go, well, what's going on? Because in verse 13, he says, the temple is a place for God to dwell forever. Um, and this prayer, if you, you know, if you skip ahead, it goes on for several more verses. But one phrase that is said throughout this prayer is, God, hear from heaven your dwelling place. So what's going on here? Well, uh, God does, his presence can be found everywhere. No matter where you are, if you're up on an airplane, you know, 35,000 feet in the air, guess what? God's presence is there. God is the ultimate master of hide and seek. He can find you anywhere because he's everywhere. This, we talk about the omnipresence of God. But the temple, like I said, it's a special place to experience God in a unique way. You can go for a walk around your neighborhood and see creation and feel the presence of God, but the temple, you felt it in a different, unique, powerful kind of way. So God's presence in heaven doesn't negate the role of the temple, and God's presence in the temple doesn't limit his presence elsewhere. But David, uh, I keep saying David, Solomon. Solomon... Uh, he's, his prayer goes on to say why the temple was important to Israel. Like, what did it do for them in their life? So if we keep reading, in verse 28, it says, Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in, the presence, in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said my name shall be there so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And here's that phrase, hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. So one role the temple played, the temple was to be a place of prayer for Israel. Those familiar with the ministry of Jesus, you might connect some dots. Jesus went and cleared the temple uh, during his lifetime at one point. He was angered when he saw the temple become something other than a place of prayer. And he said that to the people there. He goes, this is supposed to be a place of prayer. Now, prayer is such a big topic I mean, we can't even begin to scratch the surface of it today with the time we have. But prayer, when you just boil it down, it's communication with God. It's communing with God. And so the temple was to be the special place to commune with God. If we keep reading, verse 30, uh, 33, no, 31. In verse 31, when anyone wrongs their neighbor... And is required to take an oath and they come and swear an oath before your altar in this temple. Then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing down on their heads what they have done and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with, uh, with their innocence. The temple was to be a place where justice was found. In other words, where the wrongs in relationships were made right. In this world, we can see, we can experience a lot of injustice. But when you bring that to the place where heaven and earth meet, God's justice starts to prevail. God's justice starts to win out. If we continue reading, verse 33. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, 
And when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to their ancestors. The temple was to be a place of forgiveness. He picks up uh, on this as well in verse 46 through 51. This might be what most people think of when they think of the temple. Oh, it's a place where sacrifices happen uh, for forgiveness of sins and things like that. But the, the temple is supposed to be a place where you can come and have that burden of sin lifted off. That debt eliminated, so to speak, the, the sin to, to find forgiveness. If we keep reading in verse 41, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. The temple was a place where God was made known. To those who didn't know him, God would be made known. If you remember again about Jesus clearing the temple, this is supposed to, he goes, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus saw the temple as not just for Israel, but a place where all people can get to know God. And so in that sense, the temple itself was missional. When Jesus shows up on the scene and he goes, I've come to seek and save the lost, that wasn't the first time God was like, let me seek and save the lost. Hopefully throughout the sermon series this year, you're seeing that from the very beginning, as soon as we were lost, as soon as the fall in the garden, God was looking to seek and save as many as possible. And so the temple wasn't a self-serving thing just for Israel. It was also meant to be a blessing to the whole world. Then if we read in verse 44, when your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city you have chosen to the temple, I have built your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. The temple was to be a source of strength. When they experienced opposition and hardship, wars and, 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 and challenges, the temple is where they could turn and they could find strength and they could find courage. So the temple was a place of prayer. It was a place of justice. It was a place of forgiveness where God was made known, where they could find strength. It was that and so much more. That's why the temple was so special to them. It was such a special place. But again, so why should we care? Like, what does that mean for us as we live our lives today? Well, Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22 says this. Consequently, you, speaking of Christians, disciples of Jesus, you guys are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a what? Holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become what? A dwelling in which God lives by his spirits. Why should we care about the temple? Because as Christians, we're the temple now. 
We, why should we care about 1 Kings 8 and what it says about the temple? Well, because now we are where God dwells. Like the church should be a point where the divine breaks in. When people encounter the church, they feel like I'm getting a little taste of heaven right here. That we as the church are, are to be that midpoint, if you will, between heaven and earth, where God is experienced in a unique and powerful way. And so when we look at 1 Kings chapter 8 and see what the, the temple was supposed to be, it can inform us of how we ought to be as a church. Now, the idea of church is becoming less and less popular in Western society. I don't know if you guys have been picking up on this in culture. We're a very independent society, so I see a lot of people out in Christianity at large more and more saying, you know what, I, you don't need church. You just need your own faith and walk with God. And to those people, I'd say, no, what you need is to read the Bible, because the Bible says nothing like that. The Bible says, no, you, we need the church. We need one another. Uh, this isn't an independent sport like that. It actually says, don't give up meeting together. Some don't like the idea of church because when a large group of people gets together, guess what inevitably happens? Conflict. It's inevitable. And since conflict is, in is inevitable, the need for reconciliation is unescapable. When you get a group, especially a group like this, guess what happens a good amount of time? Your preference does not take precedence. Well, they don't sing the kind of songs I like. Well, yeah, it, you, it, it, this doesn't all revolve around you. you know? Sometimes it's a certain direction or oh, the church is emphasizing something more than I wish they would emphasize this stuff over here. Yeah, our pre we, when you're part of a group, your preferences don't take precedence. And so you have to adjust. Sometimes when life gets busy and things, church, being with the church just isn't as convenient. And you stir all those things together long enough, and if you're not careful, then you come out with a jaded view of the church. But if we look at 1 Kings 8, it helps us see what the church ought to be. So, but let me warn you, because I think the natural human tendency is when we hear something about how the church ought to be, our first thought is to go towards how other people ought to be then and how they ought to be living. Or we think, yeah, well, the leadership better get on top of that. And the leadership is responsible for all of that. Yes, us leaders, we carry a heavy responsibility. We will be judged more severely because of this role. That's something we've accepted and live with. So pray for us, please. But the leaders are not the church. We are the church. Each one, you are a part of the church. When we're talking about what the church ought to be like, we're talking about what you and I ought to be like. It's a responsibility we all share. So when we look at 1 Kings 8, what do we see about how we ought to be as a church? Well, like the temple, the church should be a place of prayer. I think about, of all the things the apostles needed to know and be good at for after Jesus left uh, earth. Like the things they needed to, like the skills they ought to have, it's remarkable. We don't see Jesus giving a ton of very specific advice. Like, 
here's how to, here's how to preach a sermon or you know, here's how to mediate conflict between people. But one thing we do see him giving very specific direction and instruction on how to do is here's how you pray. After Jesus does ascend into heaven, the apostles go, the thing that we are going to devote ourselves to is the ministry of the word and to prayer. The first disciples, it says they were devoted to prayer. One of the habits that Jesus has that the gospels gives us insight into is that Jesus would often go to lonely places and pray. If we're the temple... If we're where God uh, should, should be felt in a unique way where heaven and earth meet, we need to be a people of prayer. How is your prayer life? Is it mechanical? How are you doing in genuinely connecting with God? Communing with God. Now, the temple was a special place for them to do that. Maybe it helps for you to have some of those prayer places that you can retreat to. And spend time with God. Do you have a place like that? That can be incredibly helpful. Or is your prayer life kind of start and stop? Is it shallow? Is it overly routine? Or you do it without thinking, without engaging your hearts? I mean, I was encouraged. I didn't ask this brother specifically, although he's in, he's in the room, I think. Uh, so I'd, I won't say his name because I didn't ask him specifically if I could use his name. But I got a call from a brother this past week who just wanted to talk about some things. So, you know, we get on the phone and he, and, and he goes, hey, I just wanted to talk to you about some things, but hey, before we go into that, do you mind if I just pray for our conversation? I go, yeah, absolutely, go for it. And so he goes and prays and I'm, that's the spirit of prayer that we ought to have as disciples. Prayer is ready on our lips. I think like the temple, the church should be a place of justice. Now, the topic of justice can have all kinds of stuff attached to it nowadays in our culture. So some of you might be like, where's he going with this? <laughs> justice and righteousness are two closely related terms in the Old Testament. At their core, they're really just about acting in a way that's right in our relationships with one another. Acting in a way that's fair and respectable to each other. The, the church should be a place where our relationships stand out. Jesus actually says how you love each other will be a, a defining characteristic of your discipleship. The, the church ought to be a place where the wrongs in our relationship are made right. If you are made aware that you wronged someone in the church, you should make it a top priority to go apologize, seek reconciliation. We should, um, in our interactions with one another, we should uh, resist assuming the worst in one another. We should resist jumping to conclusions with our interactions with one another. And again, it's, here, it's easy to hear these things and automatically think of other people. Well, how well are they doing that? Listen, I'm not talking to other people. I'm talking to you. How are you doing in this area? How do you treat others within the church? In what ways do you show love? In what ways uh, do you help right where there may have been wrongs? How do you show respect and fairness to others? Like the temple, the church should be a source of strength. 
And it should be a source of forgiveness as well. I think when our relationships are strong, the church becomes a much better place, a source of strength. We send out, and, and let's tie this all together to being a place of prayer. We send out prayer requests every week of things that are going on in the lives of, of the church. Let's, it's, it's very easy to say a prayer for one another in those moments. We can provide strength and support for one another and be prayerful. I think another area, though, in, in ways we can provide strength to one another and the, 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 the church can be a source of strength is by encouraging each other with scripture. Yeah. Uh, in the course of conversation, we share a lot about our lives. Yeah. Um, and as we do that, here's my encouragement to us. Open up the Bible. Refer to scriptures that speak to the situation that just came up. Let's not drift from consistently using the Bible in our conversations with each other. As you discuss whatever, you know, life situation, whether something with family, something with work, something with finances, whatever it may be, as you discuss whatever it comes up, the, the, let the primary question that dictates that conversation be, well, what does the Bible have to say about this? And let's encourage and strengthen each other with what scripture has to say about it. Amen? Yeah. The last point I want to make here is like the temple... The church should be a place where God is made known to others. Now, there's a lot we could say about this, but I just want to focus on one particular area. On any given week, we have guests who worship with us, who are seeking God on some level. And I think with a group our size, here is where we can be vulnerable. We're big enough that if we're not intentional, if we're not trying to look for others who might be coming, worshiping with us and seeking God, if we're not looking for that, they can fall through the cracks. Yes, yeah. Now, I hate it. I mean, all capital letters hate it. When someone worships with us who's seeking God and says, no one introduced themselves to me. No one really said anything to me. I hate that. I would much rather their complaint be the exact opposite. Like, man, you guys need to learn some personal boundaries and stop <laughs> coming up and asking and saying, introducing yourself and asking for my number. When can we hang out? Like, you guys are smothering. I'll take that complaint any day of the week. Rather than, I was in a room with hundreds of people who say they're Christians and not one of them said a word to me. Mercy. That, I'm like, no, we can control that, guys. Yeah. And if we're supposed to be a place where uh, God is experienced, then let God's desire to be in a relationship with them, let it be reflected in how we treat them. Yeah. So God will do anything to be in a relationship with them. Let them feel a sense of that from our excitement to see them and to interact with them and to start a friendship with them. So allow me to challenge you as a church. When you come to church any time, henceforth, <laughs> I want you to actively look for people you don't know. You come in with the mentality, all right, I'm going to, 
I'm going to be looking. I'm going to be scanning uh, for people I don't know. And when you see so, 